Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is March 2018, episode number 103. And our guest for this landmark episode is the artistic director of the Midwest Dramatist Center, Mr. David Hansen. Dave recently spearheaded the Midwest Dramatist Conference, along with an outstanding supportive crew for three days of unbelievably wonderful play readings, excellent camaraderie, and one of the best conferences I've been to in a very, very long time. Uh, We managed to get Dave on the phone for a little while, and of course, since this was their premier conference, I wanted to know all about it and how they managed to survive the ordeal. The short answer is we've only just recovered, so about a month to recover from doing a national conference. Uh, I would say uh, when you look at Kansas City, um, it's an interesting place to be from and to be a part of when it comes to the arts, because um, historically... We were actually Vegas before there was a Vegas. Um, and okay. really that... That bears explanation. Well, before you had planes and before there was Vegas, um, it was really how far could you get from the East Coast on a train? And that was Kansas City. So if you've ever heard, um, for those of you who, uh, are for, if you've ever seen the musical Oklahoma, and the guy comes back from, from Kansas City, or for those of you who didn't watch Oklahoma... And you listen to uh, Blazing Saddles by uh, uh, Mel, uh, Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks. Yeah. And he, and he talk, He has some things to say about Kansas City. Well, Kansas City actually was the place where burlesque, vaudeville, all of those things. Um, we had this huge street full of theaters. And so really up until, oh, the 40s, Kansas City was sort of the last stop. Uh, and, and this great, amazing place that you came for entertainment. And then, um, whoever's to be believed, um, there was some Kansas City mafia figures, or maybe not mafia, but whatever you want to call them. They decided to go west, and they have Vegas. We have the airlines, and we have a whole bunch of things. And, and that kind of moves out. And, and Kansas City's left in uh, with their sort of jazz heritage, and a lot of that sort of stops, and we become a little more puritanical, if you will. That's it's, an interesting term, puritanical. Puritanical. And so we kind of change, and a lot of the big old institutions sort of, uh, they, they kind of go away or they go into the background. And so then you go for so 40 years or so, and really theater moves to the big cities, and particularly New York uh, and particularly um, the Eastern Seaboard and, and to Chicago to some extent. Right. And something starts happening in the 90s, which is it gets really expensive to live in those places. And you start seeing towns come up and have a theater uh, theater background. And, and I actually got to Kansas City in uh, the late 90s. And by the time I got here, Things were already starting to change. You know, we weren't certainly where Chicago and Minneapolis were, but we were certainly on our way and certainly trying to do things. And I think we had uh, some of the great things, which was cheap living, which is something you need for artists. You need spaces to do things. And there was a lot of uh, places to have theaters uh, in that in that period of time because there was a lot of buildings that weren't being used. But you had to have people who wanted to do that. I think we started to have a lot of people who wanted to stay. 
and a lot of people yeah. who wanted to participate. And so along the way, um, folks have kind of done this and they've, they've done that. And so I've been here for about 20 years. And uh, really towards the last 10 years, you've seen an investment in, in theater. And I, I think you've seen it at every level. The one place that we didn't have investment and the one place that I think really sets a town apart as far as whether or not I'm going to be a theater town or not is having a playwright development place, a place where we're really focused on developing the playwright as much as a single work. Uh, for folks who've, who've been to developmental things, you'll know that there are a lot of resources available for, for developmenting a piece, right? Absolutely, uh, yeah. National New Play Network. Um, uh, there are a lot of times when a, when a theater company will take on a piece. But to develop a playwright, you look at the great towns that exist, and almost all of them, in terms of theater towns, they all have playwright development places. So we, we think of the new dramatists at, in New York City. We think of the Playwright Center in Minneapolis. Uh, Chicago has a – I can't remember what their playwrights group is called, but they have an active playwrights group. We didn't have that in Kansas City. And so we decided there were uh, four of us who got together and really talked about it. And I will be honest, it was my third attempt to start – a playwright development center here in Kansas City, but it just was the right time. And, and there were four people, uh, Michelle T. Johnson, uh, Tyreen Johnson, uh, Vicki Vaudre, Brian Colley, and myself all got together and said, this is what we need to get done. And so we started the Midwest Dramatist Center. And it's been, this is year five now for the nonprofit Midwest Dramatist Center. And as we, as we have um, gone through the process of, A, just keeping the doors open, because that's always a challenge with a nonprofit. Uh, especially uh, with theater, yeah. And remember, we're developing playwrights, so we, we don't have a production. We're, we're not going to have something to show people. We have uh, public readings, and we have things that we do, but we are in support of the playwright. And, and so, it's, and it's usually the product that brings in the money, not the playwright. Exactly. Um, but you, you need the playwright anyway. So uh, this past... Uh, about a, nine months ago, I think now, uh, Vicky Vaudre came and said, you know, I really think we should try a national conference because she really thought that it was a chance for, for us to really uh, invite people uh, and, and make a difference for writers. Because one of the things that we are very, very focused on is, is trying to make sure writers have opportunities, particularly new voices. And we, we looked at this and we said, well, this was an opportunity. Uh, we could bring a group of people to Kansas City. We could bring a group of industry folks, uh, some who are going to be here, some who are coming from New York, and we could, have an, uh, we could have a conference. We actually didn't know how national it would actually end up being. Uh, we had people from all four corners of the, of the country, so we were very, very excited about that. And, and that's how it came to be. And it's going to be very interesting because every time we've done something, uh, you know, when we launched Midwest Dramatist five years ago, there wasn't a whole lot of new play festivals in town, particularly for Kansas City writers. Now there are three. Uh, we, we've done some other things hmm. in my work with Original Voices. And pretty much once you do something, other theater companies say, hey, that's kind of cool. I want to try that. 
And so that's one of the ways we have impact. And that's one of the exciting things that we do or some of the exciting things that we do to try to have impact and to try and create space for, for new voices in theater. That's a, that's an incredible thing. Getting the new voices in there is probably the most important thing we can do as theater artists. Um, there, a, there are just so many of them out there. I, I know from being at the, at the conference, there were, let me guess, uh, 43 other playwrights there besides myself? Yeah, we ended up having, uh, I want to say, 40, yeah, 44 was the number. Yeah, and there were 44 plays read in a period of two days, and I remember sitting through, I think, 24 of them, and it was one of the, one of the best experiences I've had going to a, a playwright conference. The voices were so disparate, and the stories just, you never knew what you were going to come up with next. You know, we had some some amazing work, um, and we were really super proud of all of the of all the voices we had. We were very ecstatic that um, out of that conference, we had actually local people who came and and saw some of those plays, and picked up some of those plays for for their development here in town. So we've had you know some success yeah. stories. You know, we've got two local producers. One who I think is already picked and is finalized and has invited some people back to Kansas City um, to have their work read as part of uh, an ongoing thing with with his theater company. We have another project with one of our folks who does um, a project for folks who are blind and and they do audio uh, work and is she's sorting through some of the ten minute plays we had to pick some of those to make offers to have their work become part of that project. So we're very excited about some of those ongoing things, not, not just what happened at the conference, but the ability for some of those things to continue to go and to be part of the world of theater. It's great to be a springboard for opportunities. Putting this thing together, because like I said, it was, it was several days, and I know from putting together the Fringe Festival that I do here in Ithaca, assembling it is, is a hard job. Was, what was the biggest hurdle you guys had for putting this together? You know, I think the biggest hurdle was belief. Um, it certainly was, you know, it, it's a logistical, uh, challenge, like, like very few you'll face, uh, when you're trying to, when you're trying to make sure everything, I, I tell people, it's kind of like playing three dimensional chess, you know, because you have, we had a, we had a core cast and you had to make sure nobody was cross purposes. You had to make sure you met where all the playwrights were. Cause we had a couple of playwrights who couldn't get in until later in the morning. So we wanted to make sure None of their plays were going. So there all these things, as I'm sure you, you know, putting on a French festival, you have yeah. to take into consideration. But really, uh, I will tell you, the hardest thing was the leap of faith, you know, because when you sit down and say, OK, we're going to have this conference, we're going to book a hotel. We've never done this before. And we're going to send this out in the world, say we're going to have this national thing. So, you know, will anybody show up? So yeah, I think, that's always the question. You know, yeah. uh, the the good news is, is it's what we do as writers all the time. You sit in front of a blank page uh -huh. and you say, OK, I'm going to create something that's never been created here and it's going to be good. And so that really was the, the giant, the gigantic hurdle we had to get over first. Yeah, the leap of faith is a tough one, especially when you're putting on something that major and there's so much behind it and so many hours of work and so much money and. Yeah, you've got to find sponsors and donors and all that sort of thing, and then you just wait for it to happen, and you cross your fingers, you cross your toes, and it's it's an experience. Uh, what was the feedback like on it? 
It's been overwhelmingly positive, I think, um, and, and not just from the playwrights who were involved. I think the playwrights all had a great time. Um, I think we were able to give them a couple of different opportunities. We, we were able to give them an opportunity to participate, obviously, in the formal reading uh, with with really uh, some things from from uh, from the folks from New York that we brought in. I think we got really good feedback from, you know, they had a, an event uh, where you guys would each go see all four of our adjudicators. You know, they may not have, you know, two of them weren't going to hear your play, but you were going to spend – uh, you know, I think it was 30 to 40 minutes in a in a group session where you could talk about theater and pick their brains and get to know them a little bit better. And then probably the thing that we we got the most, um, I think the thing that surprised everybody was we did a, a sort of insta play festival where everybody got six minutes to write a, a one minute play on uh, something they drew out of a fishbowl. That was so much fun. It was so. <laughs> We got sort of all kinds of, of, of cool things. And I think so on many, many different levels, uh, folks were able to, to, to really enjoy. Our cast uh, had a great time that we had. Mm. Um, and I think it was exceptional, by the way. The writers and the cast got, got along really, really well. So it has been, um, uh, you know, there's always, you know, hiccups here or there. But I think overwhelmingly it was positive and, and, you know, we just had the meeting and we formed the committee to do next year's festival. So Excellent. Uh, we're, we're looking forward to that. Yeah, I think the positivity was, was far and away the biggest thing about it. By the end of the festival, and it was, it was only a couple of days when we were all together, it was really two short days that we were all together, it seemed like there were a lot of bonds that had formed and a lot of friendships that had been made. And... I'm chalking that up to the fact that we were all welcomed and well taken care of. And the uh, adjudicators that you brought in, um, the folks from New York, were, even though they were critiquing our pieces, and as usual, it's, it's typical when you critique something, you're going to say something that about the work that maybe needs a little bit more attention or this didn't work. It's, but they did it in such a way that was positive and constructive and i think all the playwrights who came out of there i you know i only saw half of the uh the adjudicators uh, half of the plays being adjudicated but it was consistently across the board it was done with respect kindness and again positivity so i think it was great um and you know we listened you know and i think some of the things that we heard um where they were, you know, what was funny about it was they were just as interested in the guys and the gals who were producing theater in Kansas City as they were from from our New York guests. So uh, that was one of the more interesting things we learned was that uh, our producing group in in Kansas City was as of mo- as much interest as the folks who we brought in from Can- from New York City. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to agree with that. It's uh, the opening night presentations and speeches were very interesting, learning about the, the various theaters that were in Kansas City and the kind of things that they were looking for made it seem like an extremely rich theater community. Oh, it is. Um, and I think um, we have a theater community that has um, been very good at doing new things um, for the most part. You know, I think they are 
uh, just sort of at the front end of being a place where you're going to see a lot of good new work come out of. Um, it's been coming out, and there's some things that have started here that, you know, have gone on to really great lives. Uh, but I think we're, particularly on the straight play side, uh, we are just at the beginning of whatever is going to happen in Kansas City. Sounds really exciting. Uh, we'll just hope the momentum stays stays with us. I'm sure it will. Let's get a little personal. What got you started as a playwright? I mean, of all things, playwriting. How did that bug bite you? From my very earliest days, um, you know, the story goes in my household. I was four, and I pitched a fit because. Uh, the local high school was putting on Showboat, and I wanted to go. I don't know how I knew even what Showboat was, but I pitched this. Uh, my mother would tell me this horrendous fit. She said, "Okay, we'll take you, but you have to sit through the whole thing." You know, this is, I'm four, and so my earliest memory of all is of the scene in Showboat where where it's the they're putting on the melodrama, and the local guy is falling in love with the ingenue and. Um, he, he doesn't get that it's a play and he, so he scares the, the actor playing the bad guy off and the ingenue runs from the stage and it's huge. And so Captain Andy is basically forced to do the whole melodrama for the audience. Right. And I can still see that moment to this day of that actor, uh, doing that particular scene. And I think from that moment, I was always sort of bitten by the, the theater bug, uh, growing up, I grew up on a farm in Nebraska, so we did not have a lot of, uh, you know, most of my theater experience was maybe 20 years old by the time it got to me. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, you, you took everything that you could, you wrote everything that you could do. Uh, and then, you know, I kind of went away to school and took my first playwriting class and I remember thinking, well, this is pretty cool and realizing I had a whole lot that I didn't know. And from there, it was really more about just sort of figuring out how to, how to tell stories and, and sticking to it enough. Uh, I think one of the hardest things about being a writer is everybody assumes, and, and this is the one thing that I hope most people get about writing is, Writing is like any other craft. Uh, most people, for some reason, think writing is uh, something that is uh, the gods just touch you and, and, and you produce things uh, in oh, a yeah. way. That, it happens to me 12 times a day. Yeah. You know, and I'm always amazed. And I know this happens with, with movies, but it, does, it happens with you know, a lot of people will say, well, I, I, I love that actress, but man, that script was just horrific. That, it was terrible. <laughs> You know, a monkey could have wrote that script. And I always want to take him aside and said, you have no idea how this script got here, folks. You really don't. Uh, one of the great things about theater is we have more control than we do in some other medians. And, you know, you just start going. And every time you write a script, every time you tell a story, you tell one more thing that's better. And eventually, um, you know, I, I, I did everything that writers do. You know, I went to L.A. for a little bit. And then I went to New York. And it really was in New York where I think I found um, my voice and I found the ability to to tell a story for the stage that started making sense. And so I had um, uh, several pieces that got done in New York. Uh, I was uh, I got to be part of the BMI workshop 
there uh, as part of their musical. I'm a big fan of musicals. I'm a big fan of straight plays as well. But uh, and it was there that that I think I really found uh, what theater was all about and and how to tell stories. And so most of what I did there was was pretty. Uh, you know, if you had gone to a piece that I read, you said, oh, yeah, that's that's really theater. And I came to Kansas City and was in Kansas City for a while and started doing some things. And I started messing with structure and, and, and different things. And finally, oh, I would say about five years ago, I really started doing uh, a version of immersive theater. And that's really um, the, the first two pieces of immersive theater I wrote will never and should never be stage um <laughs> it just it's um the way i explain my version and immersive is is a really big category and it you know it takes everything from natasha pierre and the great comet of 1812 that was on broadway mm-hmm. uh and it goes all the way to sort of site specific things like they put on um sweeney todd in a bakery and so it'll be stuff like that right. um what i'd like to do is is really writing plays that give the audience the ability not to have to be forced into who the main character is. You know, I always explain it to people. So if you've ever been sitting there, and and to some extent, um, you know, <laughs> Rosencrantz and Gilderstern are dead. If you think about it, if you've ever if you've ever thought, well, what if Hamlet was actually going on at the same time Rosencrantz and Gilderstern was actually going on and you as an audience member were allowed to go wherever you wanted to, right? Because right. you know in that play that they come together. So I take it a step further in that we actually, you know, typically I'm writing three or four complete theatrical experiences that happen simultaneously and the audience sort of chooses so that if, if you like this character, we'll call him Joe, Right, right. And Joe leaves the stage. Well, you don't have to stay with who I've left you with in that space. You can go follow Joe and you can go see where Joe's story goes. And I think that's a very interesting thing. Now, it, it sort of happens that you don't well, – you'll, you'll never see everything because, you know, mm-hmm. you've, you've got to pick a viewpoint. Yeah. And that's been a very interesting thing to walk through with audiences you know, I have audiences who hate that. They hate the fact that they can't see everything. I have audiences that love it because oftentimes what happens is after the show is over, they are really forced to go talk to other audience members to figure out, what, out what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's been it's been a very fun ride in working with immersive theater. Um, I've been able to get some really cool spaces. We did uh, here in Kansas City, like most places, you have a big train station we call Union Station. And we were able to do things that were playing on three different balconies simultaneously. And so it's, it's, a, it's a huge challenge. I think that's part of also what I like about it. It's, um, it's not just a straight play in terms of I'm writing this one narrative. I've got to write these narratives that interact. And uh, I think the challenge of that is something that's been, been something I've really enjoyed the past few years. You're basically creating an, an entire a little little microcosm there you are and so basically it's however many stages you're working with you just take that times your running time and that's how much material you have to come up with wow that make it makes it it's 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 a lot slower process to write 
it is incredibly difficult to edit because when you make an edit, because these things are timed up so mm. tightly. Um, uh, I had one piece, you know, that oftentimes in these pieces where people are exiting and entering, you, you may end up with a, a window of the whole piece has to be t timed up within five seconds. Otherwise, bad stuff will happen. I'm like, how do you manage to get something that synchronized? I mean, there's there's got to be changes in delivery. There's got to be changes in blocking. It's it's a reverse. It's it's a reverse theatrical rehearsal process. So if you think about a normal way we would rehearse to put a play on, we would start with. Um, we're going to talk about character. We're going to talk about motivation. We're going to talk about all of those things. And we're really going to get into the inner guts of, of the people that we're working with in the play. And then from there, we're going to build our, our physical action. And we're going to, we're going to do things. And the very last thing we do is we get to tech week, right? Yeah. And we do Q to Q and all this stuff. Well, when you work in this type of theater, uh, you're going to spend two-thirds of your time teching. And you're going to spend two-thirds with your actors honing all of the cues, the timing, everything. So, so two-thirds of it um, – and it's funny. Whenever we get a new actor who goes through it, their first uh, – oftentimes their first rehearsal, they're like, ah, I got a headache. I don't know. I, and uh, we, we, did a, we did a project and this poor actress, I swear to God, she was going to kill me about halfway through because she was like, I don't get this. This is insane. And then about, you know, so, if, you know, we take about a normal professional run. We got about 15 rehearsals. So at about rehearsal 10, nine or 10 is when it finally looks like a play. Okay. When it yeah. finally, when they're finally as actors able to technically inhabit the world, which means that, Instead of so that all the character stuff, all of the what we would call general acting stuff, all now happens at the end when we would be normally doing tech. Right. And so it's it's a reverse process. Uh, it's not for everybody. I will tell you that right now. Ah, uh, yeah, I would uh, assume so. But it's it sounds fascinating. But for writers, uh, it's really great for us because we're like. We want to hear the we want to hear the dialogue. We you know the, all this technical stuff that we love uh, to really think about. We're thinking about there, and so um, yeah, it's it's uh, uh, one one of the one of the best lines ever. We're in the middle of rehearsal, and this one actor asks another actor, "What? Why the heck are we doing this?" She said, "I don't know. This is not <laughs> like a real play. This is not like a regular play. You, you just uh, it's uh, this. You have to go with it." So you you put these together, and how many performances do you do? And is there a life after the first production? I mean, it's hard enough to get a straight play done, you know, more than once or twice or two or three times. But for something this huge and complicated, do you expect it to, uh, to go anywhere else? Is there a market for this sort of thing? There is a market. Uh, we haven't achieved a commercial run yet. We're actually, I'm talking to somebody in town. There's a, there's a site that, that might lend well to a commercial, uh, deal. Cause it, honestly, 
it has taken about this long for Kansas City to just understand what this is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and because everything is pretty much site specific, you don't have anything that goes. I've got one piece that kind of had a, a life after because it was specifically designed. Um, the challenge was almost everything we do requires us to be site specific and to be given a site, right? Yes. And so one year I just decided, well, we're going to do something that we could just do in a regular theater that we could introduce audiences to the idea of, of, of immersive theater. And so I've got one piece that's actually set in a, we use a regular theater. The twist is, when you walk into the theater as an audience person, you go up on stage and you sit in our and you start the experience where the actors would normally be on stage. And we have four duets. So four couples are scattered throughout the theater sitting and it's kind of a verbal symphony. Mm. And when, when we say go, these four uh, plays begin and the audience can move anywhere they want in the theater. Uh, and these these uh, duets, even though they remain seated for almost the entire show, it's the most technically difficult show I've ever done because it's a verbal symphony. Yeah. And at different times, different of the couples will be loud, right? And so if you stand in the middle of the stage and just listen, you will get a tone poem that will give you the, the um, uh, overview of each of the four stories. But that means, and then there's at one point, and so it's like a symphony where um, we have different movements, and there's one point about uh, three quarters of the way through the piece where um, the loud takes place between couples. So say you got couple one and couple four, we have, say, actor A and actor D. So actor A of couple one and actor D of couple four they will actually have loud lines that are designed to be said back and forth between each other. So they're in a scene that's happening across the theater while they're in a scene happening in their duet. I so it gets pretty, it gets crazy. I can't even begin to think about the logistics of doing something like that. That sounds incredible. I want to see it. It, it was, you actually can, it's on YouTube. We, uh, uh, I, I will send you a link. Um, oh, great. It, uh, we, 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 we always wanted to know what our audience was going to do. So one night I asked for a volunteer and I took a cell phone, turned the video on and just followed her. She hung it around her neck and we followed her for how she experienced the show. Cool. Obviously, you you don't like being bored with theater. Not only do you do that, but Project Playwright. Now, I'm looking at the description here. Sure. A 10-minute play festival that takes five playwrights through four rounds, three playwrights per round, over two weekends to pick one winner. Yes. So, so imagine Tim Gunn decides to do a theater event, and this is what you would get. Um we we uh, we've done six of them, and the goal really was to find. Um, we have a core group of of nine people, so we have five playwrights, and they come in. And the 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 sort of insta play thing you did at the conference, yeah. We do a scene off at the beginning of every scene of every round, where the writers sit in front of the audience and they write for six minutes to give us sixty seconds, and then we do a cold read of whatever they do. 
And that gives people advantages in the round. And it's a pretty general, it's pretty much like a 24-7 festival in that they're going to get a writing prompt. Mm-hmm. And the kind of writing prompt, that my favorite of all time was violating Chekhov in the hood. And it was, <laughs> it was, <laughs> it's my oh, favorite title. It. Oh, that's great. Uh, it's, uh, so the, it, was a, it was a drama. It was set in a park on a bench in a neighborhood that was in the middle of transitioning, gentrifying, if you will. There is a gun on stage. The gun won't go off during your play, but one of the three characters will die, violating Chekhov in the hood. Mm. And I know it's not even his rule, but we all know it is his rule. And so they will have overnight, and we stay with them, and they are locked in a theater, um, and they sleep in the theater overnight, and they produce a 10-minute play. And at 8 a.m. the next day, they give us this play, and we give it to a director and three actors, and those folks are going to go from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. when it goes in front of an audience and judges, fully staged. It is memorized. It is blocked. We have props. We have whatever we're going to have. We do. Uh, and so then it is judged and we have a panel of judges and we have the audience vote. And, uh, one of the things we tell the audience, um, and one of the things that I, I remind all the playwrights is it doesn't matter. Uh, I've been doing it six years. I've never had a round where one of the three plays that's in a round doesn't get a vote. And when I tell people, this is, you know, this is one of the great opportunities for an audience member because there's no reviews. You have no idea what you're going to see. You have no preconceived notions, and it turns out that there is a there is really a piece of theater for everyone. Um, after every round, we pick a winner. That winner goes into the finals. Uh, every playwright, and this is what's most important to me, um, those five playwrights, as they move through the project, are guaranteed two fully staged productions, no matter what happens to them. That is the minimum you will receive. And why that was so important to me was I know as a playwright how difficult it is to get a production, oh, right? Yeah. And so one of the things I tell the people who participate in Project Playwright is, look, it, it, you know, four of you aren't going to win. But all five of you are going to have a minimum of two, of two productions that you're going to put on your resume. And I said, it, you know, that's 10 a, years That's now, a win-win situation right there. You know, 10 years from now, no one's going to know who won Project Playwright, but they're going to know you had two full productions. Yeah. Right. And that's that's the most significant part of that project for me. Um, The other thing is that everybody comes and becomes really a family for those two weekends because it's super intense. We do it four times. Right. There's a lot of people who do 24 seven playwright festivals. Most of them are only one day affairs. We do it four. we do it four times. And by the end of that fourth time. Oh, my gosh. You, you know each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I expect you would. But what I love about it is, you know, a lot of playwrights will tell you it's like we're in, we're in development hell these days. Yeah. And, and your play is going to be in development for three years. Well, we don't have time for development here. Your, your play is going to be. And the other thing is, oftentimes you're writing something you would never have written. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. we have, you know, we have a, we, a lot of years we'll have a farce round. Not many people write farces these days. And it's a really great test for you as a writer 
how am I going to do this? How am I going to get this done? Yeah. I, I think I want to move to Kansas City just to like start taking part <laughs> of your, your, your theater community here. Wow. Okay, last thing, and then I will let you get back to your Sunday night here. Um, not only are you a playwright, you are a novelist. And I was looking up your books, mm-hmm. and uh, you have one called 101 Reasons to Hate Dennis Rodman, which, again, as I said before, one of the best titles I've ever heard. But you've got one called The Spring Habit, and I'm going to let you explain that one. So The Spring Habit was a bar bet. Um, this was... Uh, the genesis of this happened who probably early nineties. And if, if you were a sports fan in the early nineties, there was, uh, a, a spate of women who became kickers at college football schools. One was at Brown, one was at Colorado. And then there was a third, and I can't remember where she's from. And, there was a huge uproar about, you know, with Title IX and everything, should they be allowed? What was the deal? And, and a friend and I were sitting at a bar and we were trying to figure out, and he asked me, he said, you know, do you think a, a woman will ever break through professional sports? Because the idea was in professional sports, it's size, strength, and speed, and there's only 30 teams. What would it really take? And I was sitting there, and at the time, there was a guy named Tim Wakefield pitching for Boston Red Sox, and, and Tim Wakefield threw a knuckleball. And I realized in that moment, I said, there's a loophole here, that a knuckleball, for, for baseball folks, uh, a knuckleball is thrown between 40 and 70 miles per hour, which means that pretty much half of the kids in middle school can throw a ball that hard, all right? Mm-hmm. But it's thrown particularly um, – uh, so that there is little to no spin on the ball because as the air comes over the laces on a baseball, it causes the ball to move up and down. And it, they call it dancing, right? Okay. Yeah. And so this is the pitch. And it used to be very prevalent way back in the day. And there's usually one or two people in the major leagues who throw a knuckleball. I don't think we have a knuckleballer around right now. We have a few people who throw a variation on it. Um but again, the, it, it's thrown 40 to 70 miles an hour. So uh, virtually any human in an adult category could do this. So, so a woman could throw a ball that hard. The problem is that knuckleballers are, are made are, – they're born not made, right? Because when you throw the ball, you cannot aim it. You just have to have great faith that it's going to do what it's going to do. So I'm sitting here talking through this idea with the guy, with my friend at the bar. And I said, so I got to have a woman who's going to throw this pitch and she has to be a woman of great faith. We decided you got to have a nun. That is a woman of great faith. And so hence the novel was born that there was going to be this, this woman who could throw a knuckleball, who was taught the knuckleball and she was a nun. And what would happen all of a sudden if this woman ended up in the major leagues? We don't actually in the book tell you what season it is, but it's 1994 because 1994 was the year of the baseball strike where there was no World Series. So I don't play with history. I haven't, I haven't screwed up anybody because there wasn't a World Series that year. And so really the spring habit talks about what would happen – if a woman made it into the major leagues and all the things that we haven't really thought about uh, of, of what that would mean. Yeah. Uh, it's, so it's a really fun book. 
Well, first of all, integrating a woman into any major league sports team, which has not had women yet, you've got logistical problems, everything from a locker room to uh, practice. It's true. And here's here's the fun thing about it, though. Um, it probably would have happened by now if it weren't for Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who everybody knows from the Black Sox scandal. Right. Yeah. Because um, he was he was the commissioner at the time. Well, after the Black Sox scandal happens, you know, that's the teens. Right. There is an event that takes place in I believe it's North Carolina and the woman's name is um, – oh, I, I should have her at the – but there's a woman who grows up as a next-door neighbor to Dazzy Vance. And for all you baseball nerds out there, Dazzy Vance is one of the great pitchers of all time. And Dazzy, um, as lore goes, taught her a pitch. And nobody knows what the pitch is. Um, there is debate about whether or not it was a screwball or some kind of breaking pitch. But anyway, Dazzy teaches her this pitch. And she is evidently really, really good at it. She's so good that she is actually given a contract with the local semi-pro baseball team. Now, this is the 20s. And major league teams are doing spring training in Florida. But the, the money isn't there. So what they do is they play exhibition games as they come up the East Coast. And the mighty New York Yankees show up. I think it's the Charlotte Pilots is the team's name. I could have that wrong, but I think it's Charlotte. And they show up in this town to play an exhibition game. And I believe the first name of the woman is Jackie. And they're in the early innings of the game, and they make a pitching change. And Jackie comes in. And not only is Jackie going to pitch – the first batter she faces is Babe Ruth. <laughs> so she's she's got Babe Ruth. Yeah. And she strikes him out. The next batter she faces is Lou Gehrig, and she strikes Lou Gehrig out. Okay. The third batter she faces is not Ruth or Gehrig, and he walks. And they pull her from the game, and there's a sensation. And there's a lot of debate about whether or not, if this was put on or not, And there are people who said, well, Babe Ruth would have done that, but there are very few people who believe Lou Gehrig would have struck out on purpose for a publicity stunt. Mm -hmm. So Kennesaw Mountain Landis hears about this, and he hears that this woman has struck out these people and that Major League Baseball is is their team scouting her and thinking about signing her to a Major League Baseball contract. And this dude was – he was not what we would call progressive. Yeah. And he bans women from participating in baseball. Yeah. And it's an, it's an order. It's an executive order. And so Jackie's contract is voided. And essentially softball is born. But it, it's really an interesting question of what would have happened had he not done that. Yeah. That because there, interesting. there was no difference in in – what was going on at that time. And we knew, you know, just two decades later, you know, a league of their own would show up. So there were still women who sort of knew about baseball and had made that transition. So yeah, yeah, that's kind of the interesting historical bit of that, but the book is fun. And it, like I said, it, it, it's been out a while. Um, it, it, it got, it got me some interesting places to go. And I, I still think it's it's 
it's legitimately how uh, I still think there will be a woman someday who can throw a knuckleball, and I think she'll make the major leagues. Oh, she's probably out there now. It'll be interesting to see it happen. It's one book I'm going to put my hands on. I am definitely going to read because it sounds really like a lot of fun. So, Dave Hanson, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, and, yeah, there's just so much good stuff going on out there. I'll probably take another trip out to uh, KC just to say hello. Anytime, George. You're always welcome, and thanks for the time. Hey, kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at On Off Stage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet or know of someone in the theater world who'd make some great chat, please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Onstage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage, offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. (laughs) 